Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Welcome to episode 24 of Therapist Uncensored. We know some of you have been following kind of how this podcast has been going, and that's hard for me to think about, actually, because the only way we can do this is to imagine that we aren't, don't have any listeners at all, but slowly it's, it's emerging that there are people actually out there listening to us. <laughs> so um, there are many people ask us kind of how it's going and what are their numbers and things like that. So quick update on that. We've got over 40,000 downloads and we are at 88 countries now. So we wanted to give a quick shout out to some of these countries that have begun to um, show numbers of interest. And it's it's actually interesting. So I want to say our, our largest, outside of, of course, the United States uh, group is Australia, New Zealand, Europe for sure, the UK, uh, Ireland, big group in Ireland and Canada. But also there's growing interest in countries such as India, um, the Czech Republic, Israel. So hello, Slovenia, Turkey, Sri Lanka. So we just wanted, you know, give a wave, Finland, Austria, and the list goes on and on. I'm not going to just continue to name countries, but uh, we, we just wanted to give a quick acknowledgement about that and to thank everyone for continuing to spread the word about the relational sciences. And uh, we hope you continue to share it with your friends and um, get the word out. But let's get right to it. Today's episode is actually a direct request from our listeners, and we're going to be speaking about grief. And for that, we have brought in an expert on the subject. Her name is Candace Lucifer Russell, and she's an expert from both sides. She'll be talking about that, having gone through it herself and also working with it, learning um, about it and uh, teaching and training about it professionally. She's a licensed counselor, but uh, as I mentioned, she does a whole lot of training of other therapists and supervision for therapists. And she has developed a program that she calls DEEP, which stands for the Dynamic Enriched Experiential Psychotherapy. Interviewing her today are co-hosts Patty Allwell and Ann Kelly. We hope you enjoy it. You have been working on understanding grief and teaching people about grief for decades now. Could you talk a little bit about what brought you there? Uh, yes. Um, I came to the work of being a therapist from my own personal experience with loss. I was in career transition when I had my son, and when my son was nine months old, my husband got a sudden illness and was only sick for six weeks, and then he died. And clearly that oh. changed my life. It shattered everything. And I can imagine. Yeah. So luckily, I did have the resources to spend the time and energy I needed to go all the way through that experience. And I had a really good therapist and family support for kind of coming all the way apart before I put myself back together. And um, so that led me to want to help other people with grief because going all the way through it did lead me to a place of deepened compassion and a fearlessness about going to these intense emotional places with other people and then I also wanted to help people understand what was going on in their bodies and emotions. So I've been reading and studying a lot of different perspectives of grief for a long time so that I can 
put words to it in a way that can help people feel okay when yeah. they're going through this hard time. I love what you're saying, Candice. And when we put out to our listeners different topics they'd like to hear about, it was surprising how much we got about grief. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying, it is when I think it's such a deeply personal experience and people really struggle with knowing how to deal with it, mm-hmm. whether it's personally or because somebody they love or go, is going through it. And so we had a lot of reach out for it, which is mm-hmm. one reason why we were so we are so excited to have you. And and you talking about what happens in the body mm-hmm. and what is really going on in grief. Yes. I think it'd be really, really insightful for our listeners to talk about, you know, really from a from a emotional and a neurobiological perspective what is going on when somebody's experienced a deep loss yes well I think it comes back to the fact that we humans have social brains and so we are physiologically and emotionally connected to the people that we care about and not just I mean we have intense physiological and emotional connections to our loved ones and our friends but we also have that kind of physiological connection to people in our community. And Mm -hmm. so when we experience the loss of someone who's meant something to us at any level, it disrupts our nervous system because there is something powerful that's missing. I mean, we actually regulate each other's bodies by being in presence with each other. And so when somebody that you're used to having present in your world is suddenly not there, it leaves this gap, this gash in your psyche and your nervous system. And um, Stephen Porges talks about how when we have a violation of social expectation, it sets our nervous system into a sense of danger. And what that means in the grief and loss situation is we have an unconscious expectation that somebody that we live with or that we care about is going to be there when we turn towards them, whether it's calling them, whether it's thinking of them, whether it's sharing dinner with them. And when we have the experience of just naturally, reflexively turning towards someone that we're used to having there and they're not there, the disconnect between what we expected to find and the absence that's really there is really jarring. It's Um, scary. It is. It is. I know one example from my own life. I remember setting the table for dinner and just reflexively getting out three plates and suddenly realizing I needed two. And uh, that's the kind of thing. It's it, it, it can be large things. You go to bed and your partner's not there. That's huge. And then right. a small thing where you're just kind of mindlessly going through a daily routine and something like, I only need two plates. It hits you. When you say that shock, it's really helpful to see. And even as you, if we could see you, the audience could see you, you would see the jerk in your body. So what you're saying is that it really, really impacts us on a very physical level. Yes. We think of it as I'm having an emotional experience. Right. And so much about our podcast is helping people understand that emotional experience is also a very physiological one. Absolutely. So you're talking about the literal feelings of threat when we have that jar and that our our bodies are having a reaction. I wonder if you could talk about yes. the, the the reaction that our body's having. Yes. So loss is like, I like the, the metaphor of loss being like a wound to our psyche. And grief is the natural healing force that comes in to heal that wound. 
I looked into what actually happens when we get a cut on our body. And I don't have all the proper biological terms, but there is a way that our bodies naturally, without our bidding, start to heal a cut as soon as it happens. There's all kinds of healing factors and inflammation and blood flow that goes towards the wound in order to start knitting it back together. And, and it isn't always pretty. It's not. And it can take a long time. And when it grows back together, there'll be a scar. And it might even be tender for a long time. Um, and grief is our psyche's natural healing process. It's the, the loss leaves the wound. And then grief is the natural like healing factor, inflammation thing that comes rushing in to heal the wound that's caused by loss. Another piece to remember is that not only do we have the wound that's caused by the absence, I like to think of the wound as caused, caused by the absence because an absence, like there's a hole there in your, in your arm, exactly. you know, there's a hole in your center where that person once was. There's another piece that's also self-disorganization. Our whole identity, who we think we are, who we are in the world, wife, daughter, son, brother, co-worker, boss, all of those roles and identities get shattered when we lose a loved one. And also um, our very idea of how the world works. Like for me, I, my husband was sick for six weeks and dead, and it was a weird virus that could have attacked anyone. So kind of the rug of I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to live to old age with my husband is uh, got yanked out from under me. And We're so father and mother, this child together. That's right. And oh, I can imagine just all the expectations you had. And it's not mm-hmm. only what you are used to mm-hmm. it's all the things that you hoped for exactly the anticipation of sharing an experience together that that's got ripped right. out from under you that's right so i kind of think of two metaphors there's the wound that's caused by the absence and then there's the wreckage that's caused by yourself the way it was organized kind of coming apart it's kind of like having had open heart surgery and going back to a house that's been uh demolished so you're having the self is the house that's been demolished. The the open heart surgery is the absence of the person. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a your the the loss of the person and the loss of the self. Yeah, it, I remember in your article you talked about a woman whose engagement with the world was through her husband. Yes, and I think this touches on that. Yes. Do you want to speak a little more about her experience after her loss of her husband? Uh, Yes. My client was very, she was kind of um, introverted and had a history with her own uh, father and mother that left her feeling like she couldn't really engage. She had to be careful about how she phrased things. She was a really nice girl and uh, didn't argue with people and didn't like to negotiate things. And her husband was kind of the liaison between her and her social world. And she felt safe with him, could express herself with him. And he took care of, you know, kind of making plans for them for the weekend and, I don't know, calling the roofer to fix the house. And when he died, suddenly she was left without that liaison between herself and the social world and so she not only lost him but she lost her connection her her bridge from to the world yeah to her whole identity had to re you spoke earlier about disorganization yes so 
you could feel the wreckage yes. and then the process of grief yes. in dealing with not only the open wound and the pain of that, it's mm-hmm. also the, the, the necessity of reorganization exactly. and the redevelopment of a whole identity. Right. And that uh, somebody that then learns to interface or has to do right. these things that they may not have done because they've been afraid or not used to it. That's right. And so that's a, such an important part of talking about this today is to, to broaden our idea of how grief affects us right. and, and how to deal with it. Because so often we think, I don't know about you guys, so often people think about when they come to talk about the grief is this event that happens after a loss yes. that's to be dealt with and gone through right. and recovered from and then reorganized and get right back on track as exactly. if nothing's ever happened right. and that that doesn't work for people is right. not a, you know we're trying to demystify that here right. because so many people expect that and then yes. they expect that of themselves right. or their loved ones yes. and when that doesn't happen then there's something felt as off or wrong. Right. And so it's so great to have you talk about that so that we can demystify what's happening right. and see how deeply impactful this is yes. on, on so many levels. Yes. As you said that, what came to mind is how many times people think that they're supposed to get back to the way they were before. Right. You'll never be the way you were before. I mean, that's what to remember that the only way we grow and change in life, I mean, our, our the way our psyche is set up is a complex system, and it's set up to come apart so that we can grow a little. You see it in children a lot when they are learning how to walk, for example, like they, they start to learn how to walk and they start to get a little... Um, good at it and they have a certain level of balance and everything and then they go through a time where they're really fussy and they're having a hard time they start falling a lot because they're growing and it comes back together later in a few weeks and they actually can now run and they have 12 new words and they're just that's a great analogy yeah and and so we can't grow without this they call it disequilibrium where our self-organization comes apart and reorganizes at a higher level so that's what's actually happening when we suffer a loss is we have a huge disruption in our self-organization when it comes back together it's going to be different than it was before and that's part of why i'm so passionate about this is that if we can have help to understand that and rebuild ourselves in safety we actually can have a higher level of self-organization where I'm not saying it's good and that we should be happy that we had this loss, but there's an opportunity for growth in the middle of this if we have help to bear the enormity of what it feels like. Yeah, it's an opportunity for us as an individual who's going through grief and Mm -hmm. for those that are remaining in our lives because like you mentioned, maybe with the one client is that her husband served that role. Now Mm -hmm. she is going to be having to reorganize herself, but probably Mm -hmm. other people who may not have been in a primary function in her life might shift. So it changes not only yourself individually, but it changes your relationship. It does. So I guess what we're talking about is that thinking about grief as a important process, not yes. just a negative thing that happens exactly. after, a, after a loss, but a very important healing process that is a necessity yes. for us to go through mm-hmm. in order to adjust to this loss, in order to experience the threat that hopefully is there. But because I imagine if we have a loss and we don't feel threat ever, that's not a good sign. Right, we right. Need, 
Well, and I, I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about what that looks like. What are the symptoms? What do people actually experience? Mm-hmm. And why, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we think about how... Um, if we talk about the nervous system and how we have, uh, you've talked in other um, episodes of your podcast about the polyvagal theory, and that's um, thinking about how when we're either in social safety or we our nervous system perceives danger, which engages the fight flight response, or our system our nervous system perceives such intense danger that it feels like life threat, which in, evokes a more collapsed response. One of the things that people talk so much about when they've experienced a loss is the intense physicality of what grief feels like. And so many times, especially in early grief, but it can come along anytime when you experience that that turning towards someone and they're not there and you have that shock, that startle of they're not there one more time. People have experiences of a pounding heart, of insomnia, of needing to pace, of, of staying over busy, or of losing their appetite, of sleeping too much, of having a hard time even moving, a real sense of heaviness, and, and moving back and forth between emotional numbness where they just feel kind of nothing, and between that and overwhelming emotional experience. And if you look at this nervous system response, it's actually all the upregulated things like heart pounding and insomnia and and keeping too busy and all that kind of stuff is all the fight flight response and the numbing and the lack of appetite and the sleeping too much and being exhausted. People just describe being exhausted. I remember about Two years after my husband died, I was packing a bag to take my son to the swimming pool, and it, I just noticed it wasn't hard. That for two years, just putting a water bottle and a snack and a towel in a bag felt like it took every ounce of energy I had. Sure. That kind of exhaustion is the collapse, the right. life threat response. So for people to realize that that's normal, that's your nervous system responding to threat. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel overwhelmed by it because I think the experiences of emotion that we have in grief are usually for a lot of people more intense and longer in duration and more uh out of control, feel less able to be controlled and tamped down than anything a lot of people have ever experienced in their adult lives. And uh, and you mentioned it was two years before you realized that. Yes. I mean, it, so often we're thinking of people recovering in a matter of months. Right. And, and yet, so it's so important to realize that this can be, depending on the attachment yes. and the connection, it can be so years. long. It took me five years before I felt mm-hmm. actually normal. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that you go from, it's you feel nothing better until five years. It's a progressive experience, but. Um, well, and I'm really struck when you talk about the physiological responses and they're either activated or that collapse. You know, we have this image from old films and stuff that when someone has a loss, they're immediately medicated or given a glass of brandy or something. Mm-hmm. And and on you the other, they're all activated. They're right. getting brandy. At the, very, at the moment of the impact yes. and for a while afterwards, you know, mm-hmm. sleeping pills. Yes. And then we move on to the next stage, which is when they're 
tired and down and immobilized. Mm-hmm. We're all there trying to cheer them up and get them out of bed and get them out right. into the world again. Right. So we're like working against the body exactly. all the time. Exactly. And I think that the, what's, what's interesting is that both are required for healing. Because if you think about it, this it's there is an oscillation that's required in order to heal in that the wound of loss you think about a wound you have to rest you have to recuperate there's a certain sense of kind of like having a flu where you need to go to bed and convalesce but in order to rebuild a self that happens by experience we can't rebuild a self without going out into life so you have to take action you have to move out into the uncertainty of this new world uncertainty is dangerous for humans unless you have a sense of social safety that's what Porges says and you have to take action to go out into the world to have a new experience of life without your loved one I had to set the table with two plates in order to get it in my body that I only needed two plates but when you go out into the world that requires that activation and it's going to make you scared and you're going to have to do it and then that's going to evoke all the intense emotions which is going to make you need to go back to bed and rest to recover so there's a natural oscillation that happens that generates the healing but in our culture we're taught not rather than even being taught that it's there and to listen to it what you're, exactly what you're saying is we're taught shut that down go against it and fix it fix it obviously exactly. if you're too elevated you need to come down and if you're too down you need to come up right which which i guess in some level can be true if you right. spend too right. long in one area and you resist going to the other one right right and so being able to listen to know that you need to do both you need right. to go out you need to feel when your body's feeling too much threat you need to right. challenge right and you need to feel when your body's feeling too much threat right and giving yourself time to come back and retreat and but if just like in a wound you if you're laying too much and tending right. too much to that wound then you don't build you muscle get stiff you, and you get, can't yes move. yes so once down you experience some of it and then you regenerate to go back that's right well, and the other piece of this that i want to make sure we don't overlook is the social um part yes the sort of safety system yes because it's not something that the griever does alone. That right. sort of oscillating back right. and forth. Yes, yes, that's natural and normal, but right. that doesn't mean they have to be alone in that. No, and in fact, they can't. I think it's almost impossible for people to sense into and live out that natural oscillation without social support because it's intense our social brains have to have the help of another person the under being understood being cared about and not being left alone in our big emotions in order to be able to bear that kind of emotional experience especially that's so far out of the range that we're practiced in being able to feel and that's the very thing actually feeling like you have places where you're understood is the very thing that can help you shift your nervous uh, recruit your nervous system's oscillations between the activation and the rest 
in a healthy way, in a way that's actually healing. If you're just terrified and you're overwhelmed and you're scurrying around and you don't know what to do and you feel ashamed of yourself because the culture is saying you you should go back to work next week when you're when your child died, you know, your wife had a miscarriage last week and you should get back to work uh, next week because that's you didn't have a miscarriage. Get back to work. You can people can feel so much shame or fear or or the emotions don't stop, so they're afraid and and their helpers are afraid. And maybe you should take a pill because you shouldn't be this upset. All those things like actually leave you in a state where your nervous system is just kind of running rampant in a fear state, and uh, you are activated in a way that's that's not. It's, it's a layer of fear that sits on top of the intense emotions that go along with the oscillations of grief. When you actually are afraid of those emotions, and we have a story that tells us that those emotions are bad, then those oscillations can actually feel overwhelming and scary, and you don't experience the healing of it. It's when we have understanding and help that we can start to listen to those things and have people help us find the courage to do the hard stuff that scares us and have people soothe us when we're feeling down. So I think one of the things that I'm curious about, we've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about giving you a pill and trying mm-hmm. to get you out of the mm-hmm. house. So for people who are with someone who mm-hmm. is in grief yes. or love someone who yes. is in grief, mm-hmm. what's the um, helpful yeah. and appropriate way to respond? I think that's a great question because... Our culture is so bad at that, too, since we're always thinking that we're supposed to be getting better. Fixing the problem seems like the thing that we would be the most helpful. Our instinct, if a friend is laying in bed too much, would be bring them out. Right? Right. I mean, it's, it's a caring response, a natural caring response. That's right. So the thing that, um, that really helps me help people understand what's going on in them is the attachment theory idea of the caregiving reflex all mammals who have this are wired to have this attachment system and part of the attachment system is the caregiving reflex so when there is a person that you care about who's in distress your biological reflex is going to be to help them not feel in distress you want to alleviate their distress that well, is part of it also puts you in distress right, right? so your right. body gets activated right. exactly and what's so difficult about grief is that the only way to fix that problem and alleviate the distress is to bring back the dead person and that can't be done and so your caregiver reflex is thwarted it means that you cannot do the thing that your biology is telling you to do which is protect them from this danger and fix the problem so i think that our culture tends to be a fix-it problem-solving culture and in fact we approach grief as a medical problem because that gives us the illusion that it is something that is like an illness that we can cure and that actually leaves people feeling really dropped and alone because there isn't a cure. (laughs) And shame. Right. So for helpers to recognize that reflex to fix it as normal for them, right? To realize you are going to have that reflex, 
but to calm your own helplessness and anxiety that might come because you can't fix it and use your higher brain to make a choice to go be with them. I think being present have the image of rather than trying to fix the problem, go sit down next to somebody and be present with them in it. And that's where the unbearable can become bearable when you're not alone with it. What you're saying is that our instinct is to want to jump on it fast and to try to help them in whatever state they're in. If they're high, bring them down. If they're low, bring them up. But yes. you're saying for us to really recognize that it's our helplessness and our instinct to want to do that that's making us act. And you're saying to slow down. Yes. And to recognize we feel helpless. Yes. And then what I hear you saying, Candace, is that probably the most important way we can be effective is to deeply just connect to them. Yes. And recognize... You're so, you know, of course you're crawling in a hole in your your bed. Why wouldn't you? This was a huge loss. And to first connect with them and really let them know in an unshaming way that this was a huge loss and you get it. And that in and of itself, you're saying even from a biological perspective that that will help connect our systems. It may yes. help them go from a really low state up. Right. Instead of saying, come on, get up, it's right. go down with them. Right. And in doing that, that their mm-hmm. body would be able to feel safer and more likely to relax. Right. Because that's the thing, too, that Porges is so good at distinguishing the difference between what he calls immobilization with fear versus immobilization without fear. To make that in everyday terms, what you're describing is somebody who is let's just say they're in bed immobilized immobilized. and so they may actually be in a negative immobilization with fear state where they might have they might fall into depression and be unable to get moving and their body's probably not doing a lot of healing when they're in a more depressed overwhelmed state but if you let's just say is somebody you know well and you go crawl in bed next to them and say no wonder you're having such a hard time i think it's good for you to rest they may not change their behavior in any way but in that social connection you have moved them from immobilization with fear to immobilization without fear where they can relax into it and their body is then starting to start actually the healing part because they have this what you're mentioning is they have the social connection yes. as well as the deep understanding and those two things going together yes can really work to help that body even if they didn't get up right they move from a fear which is this world is really unsafe and I can't go on and I'm alone and all these things we tell ourselves right to oh somebody's there for me and I can't get up but I'm not alone and so it's it just really heal that's right let's pause to thank our sponsor Leslie University Mental Health Counseling Programs where you can help others transform their lives with creativity and compassion you can apply a social justice lens to mental health care and achieve your own goals through their master's and PhD programs. Online at leslie.edu slash mental dash health. Now let's return to our podcast. Yeah, I wonder if you could touch on too how idiosyncratic grief is. Ah, how yeah. it looks so different. Yes. I mean, that's another thing that is such a gift from Stephen Porges is talking about how neuroception, which is our nervous system's mechanism for perceiving this this uh, 
threat level that we keep talking about where we feel either fight uh, danger so we go into fight flight or life threat so we go into collapse neuroception is the mechanism through which we our nervous system perceives the world that determines whether we're in threat or not that neuroception is affected by things in the outside world and things in the person's body somebody who has a really sensitive nervous system and feels their emotions very intensely for example, just that versus somebody who kind of has a more um, a, a nervous system that's not quite as sensitively wired. Somebody with that more sensitive nervous system is going to feel these emotions even more intensely. And so it could feel even more dangerous than it does for somebody who has a nervous system that's wired to not feel things so intensely. That's just one example. But it also is if you have a history of trauma that can lead you to feel more dysregulated, for example, with, by, by emotions. If you had been shamed for feeling your sadness when you were a little kid, when you're feeling a lot of sadness, it's going to be paired with shame. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with your grief. It means your current grief situation is tapping into some old wounds. And so if you have somebody who can help you with that, it's actually an opportunity to heal old wounds as well as feel your grief. But we can't assume that like even something like trauma is not the same for everyone because they have found people who have experienced trauma in childhood and they've done a lot of work to resolve it. They actually have more of a sense sometimes of resilience around difficult things. So they may be actually more able to tolerate the big emotional swings because they've actually strengthened their nervous system to deal with this stuff. So we can't make assumptions about anything in a rigid way. But. Right. And so what are some of the things in the outside world that could be impacting yeah. it? Um, it th things like, um, let's say... Um, a couple is divorced and the wife has, you know, a large custody. amount of custody and the uh, wife is the one who dies. Now, dad actually not only has this complicated loss of his ex-wife, but he suddenly has full custody of these children. So he has a radical shift in the way his life is organized. I also see people who have to suddenly move out of their home because the person who died is, was the major wage earner and they can't afford to stay in the home that they were living in. So not only have they lost the person who was their spouse, but they have to move all of a sudden. And so they then to. they're having to deal with really complicated grief. So right. not only are they dealing, as you talk about, with the open wound and their own personal reorganization mm -hmm. of their identity in their world, mm -hmm. they're going to have to deal with the external factors of whole life change exactly. and, and life exactly. stress. And then another factor is the life phase of the person who dies. I mean, when, like we were talking about earlier, if when I lost my husband, he was young and I had an infant. You lose not, like I not only lost that person, but I lost our future. I lost my co-parent. I lost, and I, and I also had more of a, a shattering of an unconscious deep belief system that bad things, random horrific things don't happen. Mm -hmm. And when somebody who has been married for 65 years loses their spouse, it can be as painful, but it's a different kind of pain. They have been used to co-regulating their bodies for 65 years, and now that person's gone. And it can take, they may not ever feel 
like they're whole again, but they can feel like they want to go on, but they aren't losing the future. They're losing the person who shared all of their memories. And they're not likely to experience a radical sense of the world doesn't make sense because it's natural for somebody to die at the end of a lifespan when they're 89 years old versus somebody who suddenly dies when they're 35. Well, and it occurs to me, too, that someone who lives to 89 has probably experienced lots of grief Mm -hmm. and has used that muscle and it it's still painful but Mm -hmm. it prepares you for the unexpected it can if people have been helped to grieve as they move along but if we can't assume that somebody who's old has had that help because our culture really is terrible at it so people could have had um lots of losses in their earlier lives that they were never helped to grieve and so then when they do have a big loss if they haven't been helped to grieve their former losses a lot of times the grief feels extra large because it's it's pulling all those old griefs up to the surface Mm -hmm. so i can really connect to some of what you're saying also about the loss of sort of the identity and the expectations of what you're going to experience and when I lost my mom. I thought that would uh, it was the most devastating loss I can imagine having at the time I was 30. Oh. But I I was surprised to recognize how much my identity once I lost the concept of being her daughter. Yes. And she was somebody that had um, a lot of illness in the end for quite a many years. And I lost the identity of being her caretaker. Yes. And, yes. and so what I remember feeling is a really kind of a sense of loss of self yes. because I didn't recognize how much of my identity was yes. being the helper. Obviously, that's not shocking as I'm a psychologist, but right. how much of my identity about being her daughter and about being in a family uh, and and caretaking. And I remember it feeling like like the world was a little unstable. Like I remember thinking when people speak about how your foundation shakes. Yes, yes. I could have never known what that meant ever. Somebody could have told me in a loss, and I've been there for many losses before then, but I'd never deeply understood what it meant to feel your foundation shift. Yes, and that's and I can think of it as you described the physiological aspects yes. of it. Like, yes. And it's very deep and it's very physiological it is. and profound. And it's it not something that then in six months to a year, all of a sudden my foundation is back exactly right. as I remember it. Right. It never never reorganized that's itself right. again right. in that way. And right. it did in different ways, obviously. Right. But right. it's it's quite profound. And as we're talking about it to our listeners, yes. um, what I hope that we're we're helping to disseminate. As, as you want to in your book is the idea of demystifying what happens yes. in grief yes and demystifying and and actually really allowing people to speak about it in a way that they don't feel shame yes and whether the whether the death happened two months ago or 10 years exactly that it's still a deeply relevant part of our lives exactly and that the really important aspect is community connection around it and being able to talk about it exactly but that's not always easy to do right right it's not you know while you were talking about your mom i was thinking about my experience with the loss of my mom and it was right when i was launching into adulthood Mm -hmm. and so i'm one of six kids and 
what happened that was so strange was the entire family shifted. She was the center of the family. And so there was this pressure from my siblings not to change anything. And it was right when you're, you know, becoming an adult and experimenting with all these new changes. And my siblings were like, no, don't do that. Anchor down. Yes. Yeah. You have to behave the same way you behaved when you were a teenager. Wow. Because things can't change anymore. We can't bear any more change. Uh, Yes. The whole developmental process is everybody wanted to sort of hold. Yes. And sometimes you can feel a sense, we haven't spoken about that, but a sense of um, betrayal if you change like yes. if you if you move on or you start mm-hmm. to yeah and I think you also brought up another important point that like I was saying earlier that self-organization coming apart is necessary for growth and it's another one of the external factors in determining how grief will manifest is the life phase that the person who is losing someone is in because when you're a young adult your self-organization is already coming apart like when you're in a transition some sort of developmental transition and you experience a loss it can feel way more chaotic than if you're not in a transition because transition by definition is your self-organization coming apart so you were already having the way you were coming loose for you to explore who you were going to become and then the loss happens right then when you're already in disorganization and then you're told don't be disorganized at all no Put it all back, back together to and be. it's like that's yeah yeah i mean obviously it, sure. it was impossible right but, but i could feel mm-hmm. people's um, sort of longing for it to yes, go back to yes, the way it had been. Yes. Well, this is reminding me, too, that one of the things that it's kind of hard to express, but I'm going to try to say it, and hopefully it'll come across, but um, <laughs> it's a... Uh, I just feel deeply moved at how mortality actually is a dual-edged sword for us as humans. It's like, I think mortality is one of the most difficult things we face as humans. It's hard to know that we're going to die. And it's hard being both, uh, have these social brains where we rely on connections with people and we're going to die and we're going to experience loss. All those things are realities. And so there's a way that it is very tender and vulnerable to be a human and aware of this mortality. And it's it's such a difficult, painful thing that's just existential. And that's in our animal body. That's just the way it is. Right. But we what we also have as humans that we miss in our cultural approach to grief where we bat it away is that we also have a higher brain when we can bear mortality and go through these changes and reorganize ourselves in these ways we actually become softer kinder more compassionate more resilient people we can really feel the importance of our our lives and our relationship it actually makes the world feel more powerful and more important that's right and then we have the the sense that we are resilient we can make it through something that's that intense we can bear the uncertainty that's true in the world and then I think it makes us more compassionate to others as you were describing what you went through with the loss of your mom I and how you couldn't have known what that was like before you had the experience oh absolutely and by going through it it, it is deeply moving I 
if I could draw my mom up right now in a heartbeat, I would. But right. uh, the, the experience and the growth I've had, right. I can remember a, a, some episode I watched years later after my mother's death uh-huh. where they were having a, a mother die and somebody said, welcome to the mom, that welcome to the club. Ah, yes. And it was really serious. And I'll never forget that moment because it was like, oh my God, it really is when somebody else has experienced a really deep death. Yes. I have this much deeper connection yes. in a way that they go, and so it's and it is so powerful. And right. it is a connection to mortality because I think when you lose somebody deeply close to you, I think you really have to experience mortality, yes, your own mortality right. and the mortality of your loved one. Right, that makes you so much more aware of yourself in the world and what's wonderful so much aware of the others is what I think you're saying the the value yeah it's like your capacity to feel with yes Yes. ability to have empathy is expanded right that's why I decided to become a therapist after what I'd been through because I just knew that I had a huge capacity to sit with people who were suffering and it wasn't just from death I when we confront mortality and we don't fall apart and die from it we actually become more able to be with the existential truths that mortality is true and things don't last forever it it, it brings more beauty to each moment because you realize how valuable each moment is and so that kind of compassion and appreciation for meaning and and value we miss that in our culture we could be softening and growing and finding greater compassion for each other if we could have help to feel the grief around our losses it's not just healing the wound it's more than that if we, when we are allow the whole process to happen, we not only heal the wound, but our self comes together in an organization that's more complex and compassionate. And we need more of that. <laughs> well, and, and as we were talking about it, I think of the people that are interested in grief uh-huh. asked us to do that. A lot of it is because they want to be able to be with people yes. in a better way and are yes. confused, yes. right? And even when our, you're saying we're saying our culture tries to clamp it down, mm-hmm. we try to clamp it down because we think we're doing good exactly and so hopefully like one of the whole goals is to help people understand by by increasing our ability to experience the really deep feelings and to be with people in deep feelings that actually that is what is going to help people come to a not just to heal we're saying healing but what we said that you know Uh grief it never really ends but but the it helps fill us back up again in a different way that's right and 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 it's so interesting because it's so hard sometimes to help people understand that letting themselves have really difficult hard emotions actually expands us in such good ways because it's such an instinct to say oh don't go there the reflex is that it hurts and we recoil from pain that's and it's a physical pain that's right that's right and I also think too that's important to say whether you're a person who's grieving or somebody who wants to help somebody who's grieving I think having somebody who understands and can talk to you about it can help you start to discern whether you're getting so activated that it's starting to feel like it is bad for you or you are falling into such a collapse that it is more than you can bear because we are tender we you know, it's like mm-hmm. it, we can be broken by things and so 
I'm not trying to say that there's never a time that you would want to use medication if something is so disorganizing that you're really unable to manage it or where you might need somebody to help you get up out of bed if you really, really can't get up and you need somebody to help you get up and go talk to somebody. So I just want to, it's like the more we can be with people where they are, we can help them learn to discern the difference between an intense experience that if they bear it, they're actually expanding their range or when they've become so uh, in so much pain that it's actually hurting them and they need right. to do something about and it. And I think so much of the, you know, the helper or the mm-hmm. family member or the friend, mm-hmm. so much of what goes on for them if they're not careful is managing their own discomfort. Exactly. And knowing that, yes, you get to have discomfort right. and it feels bad mm-hmm. and you have to take care of that too. Right, Exactly. But but when you when you're with the person who's grieving, yes, it can't be their task to manage your discomfort. Exactly, beautifully said. I think that's really important when we're talking about how to give support to somebody and trying to express care and concern when somebody's gone through a major loss or is experiencing uh, a major illness that is mm-hmm. their own mortality yes. and impending loss. Like yes. we want so much to express support and love to them but it's so confusing because our needs and our emotions are so wrapped up in Mm -hmm. it patty i like what you're saying if we're not aware of what our needs are that's coming up for us then we might inadvertently put it on the person we're trying to support right and so to be really aware that for instance if we feel helpless to say i don't know how to help you right now but i want to you know or but i think the key that we're trying to stress is take the shame helping them take the shame out of their experience even if they are too far you know maybe you're you're worried that they're too far up or too far Mm -hmm. down for too long if you're worried that's okay to be Mm -hmm. able to express your worry Mm -hmm. but in a way that's sort of non-shaming for them to be there rather than it's been three months we expect you to be here exactly you know not having that approach but you know i have a i have a a little story and i hope i won't uh bust my sister on this Mm -hmm. but one of my sisters called me and she asked me how i was doing i said oh i'm kind of having a rough day and she said why what's wrong i said oh the divorce she said i thought that was last month <laughs> and the actual court date for the divorce was last month. <laughs> and just the yes. expectation that, well, it's over, you know. Right. Right. And you know what? It's so funny, buddy. So often it's because we have that expectation of ourselves, and right. you might have gone, and you're smiling, and yet deep inside, it was so easy for us to tune out of our own experience mm-hmm. and think we're supposed to be mm-hmm. over it. So, her saying it's last month. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you thinking? That just reminds me of another thing to keep in mind is that we can feel more than one thing at a time. So true. So it's so hard to remember that. Like when somebody is looking better and feeling better, they probably have times that they are feeling better and it doesn't mean you're over it and everything's fine but sometimes our wish and hope for somebody mm-hmm. to be over it really gets played out in how we interact exactly with them, isn't it? Like well, we exactly sh- and that was it exactly that was right. just a thoughtless remark right but it was so funny she just wanted you yeah. to be better <laughs> right she exactly. wanted it to be over right and she wanted and that, to be over she loves you and she doesn't want you in pain that's right it was that caregiver reflex right Surely exactly. that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. what would be the what would 
maybe the um, we'll start to wrap up. But maybe okay. if we had some um, ideas for some how we could provide more support if we are the ones that are caring for somebody in grief. And we've given a lot of ideas mm-hmm. about how to join them mm-hmm. and how to connect with them, which I think uh-huh. is so vital. But what happens if we are worried or we are seeing signs that maybe they're staying down too long mm-hmm. or up too much and that mm-hmm. they're not regulating themselves? And mm-hmm. and it's hard to know what too much is because what we're saying is be aware. Right. That yeah, that's because really, especially if you haven't been through it, you yes, have no yes. idea what too low or too, what too, low high high or too long is. But if you, if have you con- notice that they're not... One of the things I guess would assign that I would indicate is if they're not utilizing social support at all, mm-hmm. because you've mentioned, Kenneth, how important mm-hmm. social support is. Right. So if you see somebody that has or loves somebody that's gone mm-hmm. down, maybe mm-hmm. immobilized in bed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feeling very depressed uh-huh. and stay there. Isolated. I, and that they're isolating. They're uh-huh. not allowing social support. Uh-huh. And a long length of time is going on. Mm-hmm. And you could really feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any recommendations for how you would? Well, I mean, I think if you can approach people with curiosity and also know you could be wrong, mm-hmm. but um, to, to if you could say, I think it's normal to feel down for a long time, and I also see you being alone a lot, are you okay? Can I offer you some help? Is there anything that you do need? And maybe suggest going to see somebody, whether it's a therapist or a clergy member or something, because I think actually being with someone who is not a family member can be very helpful um, or a friend. Because one of the things I know that helped me, even though I had a lot of supportive people around me, I needed to talk to somebody who wasn't worried about me. I mean, I know as therapists we worry about our clients, but not in the same way. Well, also that you don't have to worry about because exactly. if you express too much depression or sadness and they start to worry and then right. you have to worry about them exactly. worrying about you. Right. And so that's one thing that I really think is important for uh, helpers, whether you're uh, like formal helpers, like a clergy member or a therapist therapist or um, even a grief support person like to really know that it's normal to need someone to talk to who is not your family member or friend. I've had too many people tell me that they went to a therapist for help with grief and they were told, well, your grief is normal. You don't need therapy because the medical model does persist in some way, some therapy circles where you only need therapy for grief if your grief is somehow not normal because that's the medical model right something's going wrong and you your grief is an illness and it's not healing right so that's when you need therapy but it's important to find somebody to talk to who understands that just needing help and support around your feelings, even if they're normal, is something that's natural for a nervous system to need. And it's not just going to a therapist to talk. We've talked a lot about all the things that you're going through that you might not even be aware of. And exactly. that's that your life is disorganized. Right. To get some psychoeducation around it. Because well, it helps you understand your... what's going on. And then, yeah. And, and, I mean, and I also think one of the things that 
you might want to touch on it, that I heard in your article was how the other model that we're familiar mm-hmm. with of the stages of grief right. is a very cerebral judging kind right. of ma- yes. model. Yes. And you can tell us a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yes. Um, I think what you were getting at, and I interrupted you, was was the piece where you all, a therapist can also help you with this reorganization of the self because there's a lot of new experiences that happen. And also, if your old uh, traumas and yes. old historic ways of being in the world are being challenged, having a therapist help you explore that instead of having somebody say, oh, you have abnormal grief because it's tapping into your old stuff, to have a therapist help you say, wow, this stuff is tapping into your, this grief is tapping into your old historic stuff it's here on the table now. I can help you heal that too. So, yeah, and, and as we spoke exactly as we mm-hmm. spoke earlier, is that it is going to be not only something that you're healing, but you're developing more muscle and more strength exactly. and all differently. That is going to grow us, yes. in a whole other way. Yes. And a therapist, and hopefully, it's one of the things this podcast does is to help us understand that therapy is not about you have something wrong and it's ill. Let's go get fixed. Exactly. It's about growth, development, and expanding how you feel about yourself in the world. Exactly. And, and, and seeing a therapist around death could be, or around someone else's exactly. death, could be a beautiful way to help you really, really help it make a healing, make it grow. Yes, A exactly. growth experience as well. Yes. So when that model of the stages of grief or, or another model that's very popular right now is grief work. There's certain grief tasks you need to do in order to heal. Um, that is, I think that also comes from our cultural fear of grief. If we can contain it and make it look a certain way, the helper feels more empowered to, to do something. No, I know exactly. what I have to do. Right. I have to get you through stage one and then stage two where I have to have you finish the workbook and then we can exactly and that is another thing that can really leave people feeling shame and feeling fear because as we were talking about earlier how many different uh, factors affect how grief manifests for any particular person there is no one size fits all model and the other thing that we have to remember as people who are trying to get help for grief and as people who want to help with grief is that Not everybody is going to be able to or want to feel their way through all of this and grab all of the growth opportunities that are there. And that's okay. And that's okay. And it may not happen right then. Sometimes it doesn't happen for another year or two years. I had somebody come to me who had lost a spouse and somebody sent him to therapy because they felt like he wasn't doing yeah he wasn't moving through his grief and indeed he wasn't he was kind of he was staying home a lot he worked but he was staying home a lot and he wasn't processing his emotions very much but when I was talking to him about it with his history he had he had lived in a, in a family where he, where he was the only male and there were a lot of hysterical women in his life and he kept his emotions very close to his chest. He was terrified that if he moved through this process of grief that he would lose the memories and the feelings of his wife. So he said he would pull them out and feel his feelings and feel really connected to her and there was nothing that I said that could make him feel like it was going to be a good thing 
to try to move through and get, get more engaged in life. And he wasn't horrifically depressed or suicidal or anything. And it's hard for a therapist even who knows that I, I really have a sense that he could have felt more traditional happiness if he'd worked through it, but he was satisfied with where he was. He didn't want it to be different. He was satisfied with his life. And so it was not my job to try to tell him that he needed to do certain grief work in order to be okay. He was okay where he was. And I think that was part of what he came to me for was to discern that. Somebody else was worried about him kindly, right? And he came to check it out and but it was like a paradoxical response from me you know the person who sent him wanted me to fix him but I helped him discern that he was right where he needed to be so that's lovely yeah Yeah. so this has been wonderful I think it's a topic that is so rich we could talk forever (laughs) Um, there's just so many parts to this but thank you so much for joining us today Candace. Thank you so much for having me. It's It's really really been an honor. It's really been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Alwell, and Sue Marriott. Becky Mendeville edits this podcast and provides technical support. 